Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. What goes up must come down. I wonder if Frank Rubio thought of those words at any point over the last year. Uh, Frank Rubio, if you don't recognize the name, is an astronaut. He's an astronaut with NASA. And he just recently, within the last two weeks, returned uh, to Earth from a trip to outer space in which he spent 371 days, 371 days up in space, more than a year. And the really amazing part of that, I thought, was that 371 days was about six months longer than he was supposed to be up there. Uh, Mr. Rubio was uh, launched in uh, September of 2022. NASA launched him up. He actually was going up to spend about six months at the International Space Station. And so he was up there. And uh, he was supposed to come back in March, March of this year. But while he was up there, at some point in those six months, uh, probably closer to the end of it, I suspect, a, uh, a micrometeorite hit the capsule that he was supposed to come back in. And this tiny little bit of space rock punched a hole in the side of the thing, and it made it unsafe. He could not come back now in that spacecraft. And it took six months. You know, we don't just have these things sitting around, I guess. And so it took six months for NASA to make the arrangements to bring him back down to Earth. And, uh, and when I was reading about his story, uh, when he landed, uh, you know, they, they did get back about two, a week and a half ago. When I, when I saw that story, it struck me that Frank Rubio needed a lot of faith, <laughs> while he was up there during those six months. I mean, just think about it. You know, once an accident like that happens, you got to be wondering if it's going to happen again, right? Every, you know, you're just always kind of looking out the window. Is there another one coming? Is it going to hit me this time? Is it going to hit the, the space station itself? Uh, you got to have to wonder about that. And I was thinking he really had to have faith because the, the whole plan to bring him back involved the Russians. He actually came back in a Russian uh, spacecraft and, and so it was all part of a partnership with NASA and Russia. And if you pay any attention to the news, you know those two countries were not getting along so well these days. And, and so at any time, you know, you can imagine Russia just kind of saying, well, get, get your own astronaut and, and leaving him up there. And so he needed a lot of faith, yeah, faith that his family, he actually missed his son's graduation. He had to have faith that his family was kind of could hold, you know, have just the courage and the endurance to get through that. Uh, faith that his body could hold up. He hadn't really trained for such a long stay up there. He just needed a lot of faith when he was up there. We've reached one of, as I said before, one of the best-known passages in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, sometimes this chapter is called the Hall of Faith. Uh, maybe you've heard that term, kind of like the Hall of Fame, except it's a Hall of Faith. Uh, and it's called that, we call it that, that sometimes because the author takes us through a series of examples uh, where he reminds us of some of the greatest men and women of faith from the long history of Israel. That's really what you have in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we're going to take three weeks to go through this chapter. We could do a lot more. I remember when I was uh, uh, much younger, when I was still living at home with my parents, I can't remember the details, but I know we went to a church where the pastor spent months and months and months in Hebrews chapter 11. He just went and preached through every single character. Uh, I'm not going to do that. So if you think three weeks is too long, just be grateful I'm not doing that. But, uh, but, but we're just going to do three weeks, three weeks uh, to, to get a, a good sense of, of God's message for us here in Hebrews chapter 11. Do I need a tech issue? <laughs> These aren't the right slides for this sermon? Okay. 
Oh, that's quite possible. I messed it up. So, so she's, she's going to check on it. Okay. So if my, if, my, if my slides don't work, I will go old school and just make sure I emphasize my points. That was what we were, how I was trained back before we had to limp along on the slides. So yeah, thank you, Devin, so much, and Margaret for letting me know. You know, when I saved the file, I remember noticing something weird, and I probably should have triple-checked it. But, so anyway, that's on me if it didn't work out right. But uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 11, three weeks here in Hebrews 11. Uh, the first thing I want to do as we get into this chapter is actually show you how it connects to where we left off. All right? So back in chapter 10, and if you have your Bible open, you could look at this. Uh, chapter 10 ends this way. Uh, the author ends on this word of encouragement. He says, We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So it ends on this strong note of encouragement, right? Some people uh, were going to quit on Jesus. There was that warning there in chapter 10, and he kind of warns us. Some people are going to look like Christians, but then walk away. It's something he's warned us about earlier in the letter. But then we get to the last verse in the chapter, and he says, but that's not you and me. Not us. Not you and me. We do not, we are not those who shrink back. We are those who have faith, he says there in that last verse of the chapter. So now in chapter 11, he's going to show us what he means by that, right? So he says, we are those who have faith. But before he moves on to the final exhortations of chapters 12 and 13, he says, let me show you what I mean. Let me show you what I mean when I say, when God, when, when Godly God says to this author, I want you to live by faith. Let me show you what I mean. And that's where Hebrews 11 comes in. It gives us all these examples. Here's what it looks like. It looks like what these people did. That's what it looks like to live by faith. So three parts. We're going to break this into three parts. And really, the author is more or less chronological. So we're going to follow his lead on that. So we're going to break it into three historical periods. Today, the first chunk of time we're going to do is the oldest time of all. It's, uh, actually, there's a fancy name for it. It's called the Antediluvian Period, uh, the time before the flood. That's what we're looking at this morning. So the examples we look at this morning are from Genesis chapters 1 through 10. Right, so we get Genesis 1 through 10. The stuff in the next sermon is Genesis 11 through the end of Genesis, really. It's all the rest of the book of Genesis. And then the third sermon will cover all the examples, lots of examples he gives us from the rest of the Old Testament. But this morning, it's just kind of some of the oldest examples of faith, and they come from Genesis chapters 1 through 10. Before we do the examples, though, he gives us a description. And it's not really a definition, technically. It's a description. And so let's get into the text. Verse 1, he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the author said, we're not, we are the people who have faith, right? That's what believers do. We have faith. We say, well, what do you mean? What's faith? He says, well, faith is being certain... He gives us kind of this two-line parallel definition. Faith is being certain or confidence of, of something that we don't have yet. So it's hoped for. We don't have it yet, but we're certain that we will. We're confident that someday we will have it. And, and he, he talks about a confidence, like when you talk about hope, it's, it's, it's a confident hope. So it's not a weak hope. Sometimes hope is kind of translated into our brains as kind of a, a, a weak thing, Right? All the Dodgers fans right now are kind of hoping that the Dodgers won't uh, flub the rest of the series like they did yesterday's games. Any baseball fans out there know they got really beat up bad, you know, kind of, oh, I hope they can do it. It's not that. Like, you're kind of hoping your team pulls it out. Uh, this is a strong hope, the way he describes it. He uses the word confident. We're certain. We're confident about it, he says. 
And then the second line in verse 1 reinforces that. He, he says, faith is the conviction, it's the certainty or assurance of things we cannot see. And so we can't see them, but we know they're there. That's what faith does. Faith can't see the object of, 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 it, of its faith, but it knows it's there anyway and lives accordingly. Uh, you and I cannot see the oxygen in this room. We can't see it, but we know it's there, right? You wouldn't come in the room if you didn't believe that there was oxygen in this room. Uh, and we know that it's there because we're, I'm t- we're all still breathing, right? If there was no oxygen in the room, we'd all pass out. And, so, and faith's a little bit like that. We, we trust in and live in dependence on something we can't actually see with our eyes. Which, uh, and, and we'll see if this is what I got up there or not. It is, thank you, you guys got it. Um, biblical faith, so what are we talking about? And I actually, I think I'm going to come back to this definition in the next, the next two times. Biblical faith is confidence in the Lord that does not depend on circumstances. So what does it mean when we talk about, when this author tells us have faith, what is he saying? He's saying to have a confidence, a, a, a trust is really the word I want us to think about. We, we have a confidence, a trust in the Lord that is not dependent on our circumstances. And that's a really essential piece we'll see as we go through all these various examples. So it's trust. We trust the Lord, that, 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 this idea of confidence in him. And I like that idea of trust because trust brings it to uh, the, the idea of action, Right? It's, so we're not talking about something we just feel or something we just think. We're, something, we're talking about something that is so deeply within us that we're going to act on it. And that's essential to, this, to the examples we have in, in this chapter. So that brings us to the examples. The author introduces us to them in verse 2. He says, For by it, by faith, uh, the people of old received their commendation. So, who are the people of old? The people of old are all these examples he's about to walk us through here in, uh, here in the chapter. And he actually, that, that phrase links us to the end of the chapter. So if you happen to have your Bible open or an app where you could scroll down to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 39, he's going to make a very similar statement to the statement he makes in verse 2. Verse 39, he says, and all these, who's these? It's the people of old that he's going to describe in all the intervening verses. All of these, though they were commended, same word as verse 2, though they were commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. And so uh, he, he's gonna, he tells us basically in the front end, and then he'll summarize it at the end of the chapter, he tells us that all of these people I'm about to tell you about, they were commended. They were commended by God because of their faith. And so that phrase, commended because of their faith, that brackets the whole chapter and tells us what that's what the chapter is about, which makes commended a very important concept. What does it mean? Well, the word he uses here, both in verse 2 and verse 39, is the word that means, uh, actually in the Greek, Greco-Roman world that he lives in, this was the word you would use when a government official wanted to give an honor to to a citizen. So if you wanted to give a public honor to a citizen, this is the word that was used, commendation. We actually still use the word, right? It's why the translators chose to to render it as commendation in our passages. Uh, You know, we talk about giving someone a medal or an award or a certificate, or uh, I don't know if you you don't see this kind of thing so much, but they used to, you know, they used to give somebody the key to the city, right? Maybe, uh, you know, somebody does something really heroic or a businessman brings a bunch of jobs to the community 
community. And so they, you know, the mayor getting the city council gives them the key to the city. It's a commendation. Thank you for what you did. We approve of what you did. We're glad for what you did. We're pleased by what you did. That's, that's what this word means. Well, that's what verse two says. Verse two says that God gives a commendation, but it's not because you brought a bunch of jobs or you did something heroic. God's commendation goes to those who trust him, those who trust him, those who have faith. That's what God commends. He commends faith. So if you want a gold medal from God, this chapter is going to tell you how to get it. You, you, we, we trust him, all right? Because that's what pleases him. So, so that's introduced for us. Those first two verses introduce what we're going to be talking about. Now our text, the next, verses three through seven for us this morning, now our text is going to show us four examples. So we only get, we're going, there's a whole bunch more. There's like 20 of them, I think, in this chapter, but we're going to start with four. The first four examples come from that time before the flood. So it's the time leading up to Noah. And as we look at these, I've, I've spent some time with these this week. I think what we have here are four foundational actions that believers do by faith. So what does it mean to, li- to live by faith? What do people who are living by faith do? Well, we do these four things. They're not the only four things, but, but we do at least these four things that we're going to talk about this morning. So that's the rest of my outline where we'll spend the rest of our time, is, is really looking at these four actions, four basic actions that we do by faith. We do them by faith. So, so let's take a look at these actions as we look at the first four examples. Example number one, the first action that we do by faith. So here's something we do by faith. The, the first is that we interpret the universe by faith. We interpret the entire universe by faith. That's what verse three says. That's where it, the whole thing starts. So he says, verse three, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So his first example is actually different from all the other ones that we're going to look at. And the difference here is that he does not tie the by faith statement to a specific person. Instead, he says, we, we do. So he actually starts with something we do by faith. And it's interesting, as I was looking at this, I think when he says we, I think we're supposed to think at two levels. Uh, we, we're supposed to think on terms of humans in general, right? So here's something humans in general do. But then he's also, I think the more direct application is believers in particular. So this is something believers in particular do. We do it by faith. And the reason I... I I, I want to take it that way is that nobody can figure out the universe except by making a a faith claim. Nobody can do it. The only way anyone can interpret the universe in which we live is to do so by faith. Why? Because nobody was here when it happened. Nobody was here at the beginning. Nobody was here, right? Even Genesis spells that out. No one was here at the beginning. And so everyone, every human being has to answer the origins question by faith. What do I mean when I say origins question? I mean, where did it all come from, right? Where did, where did, how did it all get here? Where, where did the stars and the solar system and the planets come from? Where, why does gravity work the way it does? Why are, how did life get started? Where did these animals come from? Why are humans the way we are? Uh, you know, all of these questions, the only way, what the author's telling us in verse three is the only way to answer that question is with a faith claim. You've got to, to, to interpret the universe by faith. So by faith, we believers we understand, here's, our, here's what it looks like for you and me to interpret the universe by faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That's the, the clear biblical teaching. God made it, right? That's our position. Uh, he's clearly taken us all the way back to Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, verse one. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse six, and God said, uh, let there be an expanse. And there was an expanse. Verse nine, and God said, let the waters be gathered. 
gathered and the waters were gathered into one place. And you, you've probably read it. The whole chapter goes on like that again and again. And God said, and God said, that, and by the word of God, it was made. And so everything that exists, the, the biblical claim, it's in Genesis 1. It is here in verse 3. The biblical claim is that everything, space and time, both are included in, in the Greek word that's used in Hebrews 11.3. All of it was created by God. How do you and I know that? We know it by faith. We trust it, right? We believe it by faith because God said it. And so it starts with, this very basic thing starts with this fundamental confidence that we have in the Lord. And, and this isn't important in, in a chapter where we're going to talk about um, trusting the Lord, a, tr- a trust in the Lord that does not depend on our circumstances. This is an important place to start because the circumstances around us tell us a very different story, right? We, we've, whatever, however your own education went, or even the documentaries you watch, or whatever you engage with, the circumstances around us say everything just came to be, right? That's the, the narrative of the day. Everything just came to be, and, and, and it really reduces down to two things that did it. Self-organization, some kind of universal, pre-existing, always existing principle of self-organization where matter will organize itself according to pre-existing principles. So everything came about by self-organization and then natural selection. Those two things. That's the modern materialistic view of the universe. Everything that exists, exists because of those two principles. But here's the thing. So that's, those are the circumstances that, with which you and I live. But here's the thing. That takes faith. That's a huge faith claim, right? So you ever have one of these conversations with somebody? You know, where, well, where did, where did life come from? Well, well life came from a, an ancient puddle of chemicals, right? There was this puddle of chemicals and, and uh, this chemical mixed with this chemical and, and, and uh, there, was, there was life. They say, oh, well, where did the chemicals come from? Uh, oh, well, they were just there. They were just there. But, but who, who made them into life? Well, they, nobody made them into life. They self-organized, right? There's that first principle. They just, they just clicked together. That's, how chemical, that's what chemicals do. They organized themselves into life. And then natural selection took it from there. That, that's the narrative. And as I say, that is a faith claim, just as much as anything any believer is ever going to say about creation. It requires faith. What's the difference? The difference is the object of the faith. Right? That's why this is so key. Uh, that position, I'm not trying to demonize anybody, but, but they, those who would hold that position, they have faith in eternally existing matter. Uh, we would have faith in, we would trust in an eternally existing God. Both are making a, a are, are doing so by faith. Right? They believe that uh, what is seen was made from the things that are seen. Right? That's this idea of pre-existing matter. You ask them where matter came from. Well, there's the, the whole Big Bang argument, but even that's a pre-existing thing. Right? So, so the, the world would argue that what is seen came from other things that are seen. Look how the author, it's, it's 2,000 years old, but he's, it's, he, he anticipates the debate. He says, no, what is seen was made from what is not seen. There's a biblical or a theological term for that, creation out of nothing, creation ex nihilo. That's really what's being described in verse 3. And so it's, it's this really important place where we start. We interpret the universe by faith. And this really is an important issue. Right? If, if you're tempted to say, well, it doesn't matter how it all got started. Oh, it matters a lot. It matters because it, 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 it has huge implications for how we interpret everything else. 
and how we think about everything else. That's probably why Hebrews 11 starts here. It was true for them just as it's true for us. You know, what, what we believe about the fundamental question of existence affects everything that comes after it. It affects our, um, you know, our anthropology, for example, how we think about ourselves as human beings. Are we just a random conglomeration of, of, of chemicals that just kind of randomly came together, or are we created in the image of God? You're gonna, you get very different things that you do uh, based on uh, either of those, those two faith understandings. And so uh, this is where faith begins. It actually begins with this fundamental, how do we interpret existence? How do we interpret ourselves in the universe? How do we interpret the universe itself? Well, for you and, I'm, and me, we interpret it through our faith in the Lord. We interpret it in our trust in Him. So that's the first one. Uh, action number two, the second action we do by faith, is that we worship. So now they begin to get more specific. Right? We start with that big, big picture one, and now they begin to become more specific. Uh, we worship the Lord by faith. And that's what we see uh, in the example in, number, uh, in, in uh, verse 4, the example of Abel. So it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended, Abel was commended as righteous, God commending him, by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he, Abel, still speaks. So he reminds us now, we, he took us to Genesis 1, now he takes us to Genesis 4. That's where we read the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, chapter 3 in Genesis tells us about the fall of human beings into sin. So Adam and Eve introduce sin into the world by disobeying the Lord's command. Chapter 4, we immediately see the consequences. What's, what's going to happen because of sin? Well, here we go. It gets really bad really fast. That's what we see in Genesis. That always strikes me when I read through, go back and start again at the beginning of the Bible. It goes, we go from Adam and Eve eating a forbidden piece of fruit, which seems innocuous enough, you'd think, to a few verses later, we have one brother rising up and killing the other brother, taking his life from him. So it gets really bad really fast. However, Hebrews doesn't really focus on the murder, right? When we look, think of the Cain and Abel story, we, we usually do think of the murder first, but Hebrews doesn't really put the emphasis on the clash between the brothers. It puts the emphasis more on the worship, the worship that the two brothers brought. And so they each brought an offering, they each brought an offering, the author reminds us in Hebrews, but only Cain's, excuse me, Abel's sacrifice, Abel's offering was the one that was pleasing, that was commended by God. All right, so you go back to Genesis, and, and we, I kind of, I'm going to go back and forth between the two because they fill each other in for us. The author in Hebrews, remember, Hebrews is written originally to Jewish Christians, so they know these stories inside and out. And so he assumes we know the, uh, the main details of the story, we know from Genesis 4, uh, Abel and Cain, they're the two of the sons of, of Adam and Eve, the, the two first ones that are named. Um, they, they go to worship, and, and there really isn't any idea that, there, that this is because of sin. There isn't the, I don't see any evidence in Genesis 4 that this is a, a sin sort of a thing they're dealing with. These are offerings of worship. Both of these men uh, bring an offering to the Lord, whom they fully know exists because of their own mom and dad. And, and so they, they know this, and so they bring this offering. Abel brings, Genesis tells us, an animal offering. Cain brings a, a produce. He basically brings a sacrifice and offering of produce, crops that he'd grown. And Genesis tells us, Hebrews affirms, that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, 
but he rejected Cain's. He did not accept Cain's. Uh, and so Abel's was better, uh, the more acceptable sacrifice, it says in Hebrews. It doesn't really explain why, though, and, and maybe you've wrestled with that. It's actually one of the big questions folks have about the, the Cain and Abel story. Uh, we, we find ourselves asking why. <laughs> why was Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's? Uh, sometimes, and, and this is a common answer, sometimes people will say it's because Abel's was an animal, whereas Cain's was only produce, right? And, and I do think that's actually part of it. I, I do think that the biblical narrative is going to bear that out. Um, as the Old Testament unfolds, it becomes clear that animal sacrifices are the preeminent ones, right? When you do need to deal with sin, it's going to be an animal sacrifice, uh, for example, but, but the thing is, is that there are also produce sacrifices, quite a number of provisions for sacrifices of, of wheat and barley and, and the first fruits of the crops uh, and, and so on. And so I think you can't really, it, 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 I think it's part of it that Cain brought produce is part of the reason it was rejected, but it's not automatically the only reason because there's not something inherently wrong with produce sacrifices. I think that stands out. What Hebrews 11 does, Hebrews 11 really fills in for us on, Gen on Genesis 4, because Hebrews 11 tells us, no, the problem with Cain's sacrifice is that it was not offered by faith. That's why Abel's sacrifice is deemed acceptable. He offered it by faith, it says in verse 4. By faith, Cain offered the more acceptable sacrifice. That's the part that God commends. We saw that already in verse 2. It's going to be reinforced for us in verses 5 and 6. What, is it, what pleases God? It's the faith. Abel worshipped by faith, whereas Cain did not. Which immediately makes us say, well, gosh, what does that look like? I want to do what Abel did, not what Cain did. Right? What does it look like to worship by faith? And I think the answer is in Genesis 4. The, so it's not like we didn't have our answer. Genesis 4 says that Cain brought an offering. He brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, but Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portion. And so what you see, the fat portion is the good part, by the way, uh, in case you're on a diet or something, you're like, oh, that's bad. Uh, the fat portion in a biblical sacrifice, is, it's the best part. It's the part that the king would get or you know, the, the head of the household would get or whatever it is. It's the best part. And so what you see is Abel brought his best, but Cain brought well, kind of what he had to spare. Cain brought what was lying around. Abel brought his best. And that distinction, right? We put those two passages together, Genesis 4, Hebrews 11, 4. And I think that distinction between the two sacrifices helps us understand what does it look like for you and me to worship the Lord by faith? Worshiping the Lord by faith means we give the Lord our best. We give him our best. And so our hearts are engaged, right? Our, our bodies are ready for worship. We have a good breakfast. We get some sleep the night before. Uh, we, we bring a Bible, or you know, Bible apps are fine too, but, but we come prepared to engage with, with the Word. We come prepared to engage with our hearts. Uh, when we give, right, giving is part of our worship. When we give, we give intentionally, right? Second Corinthians tells us to prepare the gift ahead of time. Why? So there's intentionality. Uh, and sacrificially, right? We give. That's, that's giving God our best, intentionally and sacrificially. When we sing, Right? We, we sing with, with joy and with an open heart, you know, and not all kind of closed off and critical and, oh, I don't like that song and that sort of thing. Uh, we, we come in ready to engage. 
Uh, I think that's some of what it looks like. And talking very specifically in the context of a, a church worship service, obviously we could broaden that to bigger contexts, but, but when we think about what does it look like to worship together as believers by faith, well, it means bringing the Lord our best when we come to Him uh, in worship. So we worship the Lord by faith. We interpret the universe by faith. We worship the Lord by faith. Uh, let's look at the third action we see. It's example number three. And the third action uh, is that we please the Lord by faith. We please the Lord by faith. And this is what we learn from Enoch. We learn from Enoch uh, that, that pleased, to please God, uh, the best way to please God is to trust him. Put your, your faith, put your confidence in him. Uh, that's what he commends. That's what he gives the award to. Uh, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. We don't know a lot about Enoch. We, we do not. He's one of the more mysterious figures in the Bible. Uh, most of what we know comes from Genesis chapter 5. Uh, it's uh, just four verses in Genesis 5. So again, we're still in that first 10 chapters of the book. Of the, the book. Um, I'm going to read them, actually. I think it's useful to read how the author describes... So this is Genesis 5, uh, reading from verse 21. It says, when, here, here's, you, know, you can hear how this echoes what is said in Hebrews. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. So he walked with God 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Or the, the Septuagint says, he was not found, which is what the Hebrews quotes. He was not found, why? Because God took him. He was not found, for God took him. That's all we got. That's really all the main biblical data on Enoch. Uh, we don't know a lot about the guy, but here's what we do know. We know the most important thing about him, which is that he was righteous. He was a righteous, godly man. And because of that, that's this idea of he walked with God. And because of that, God did something amazing for him. God spared him death. That's what, that's, I've never seen anybody come up with any better interpretation for he walked with God and he was not. He was not found. Uh, every, every reputable scholar I've ever seen interprets that to mean Enoch did not die. He was rather simply taken up into heaven. If you need another person to whom that happened, you can read 2 Kings chapter 2. It also happened to the prophet Elijah. And we have these two examples in scripture uh, of where God simply took these men into heaven without them having to die. We could speculate on what that looked like. Uh, you know, people wonder, are they going to come back again in the book of Revelation and they'll die then? That's quite possible, I don't know. But, but Hebrews doesn't go into any of that stuff. Instead, he zeroes in on this simple, he doesn't help us, he doesn't try to help us understand why God took him up or, or how God took him up, none of those things. Instead, he zeroes in on why. Why did God do that for Enoch? He did it because he was pleased by Enoch's faith. God was pleased by Enoch's faith. That's why he took him into heaven. It wasn't because of anything else he did, right? I mean, we don't know anything else he did, right? So it's not because he built some great temple. We don't think he built anything, right? It wasn't because of his good deeds or his good looks or his good intellect, whatever. No, it was his faith. That's why God rewarded him this way. And so we have this specifically applied to Enoch. Enoch trusted the Lord. He had this confident uh, belief in the Lord, 
and the Lord blessed him in that. That's specifically for him, but then this is so important. It's so at the heart of the argument the author's making for us that he takes a little tiny detour in verse 6 to say, by the way, this applies to all of us. And so verse 6 breaks with the example, example, example for one verse to say, this is for everyone. And look at verse 6. Maybe you've memorized this one. It's a fun one to memorize. He says, and without faith... So he had faith, Enoch had faith, and and was commended as having pleased God because of his faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so what's verse 6 telling us? Verse 6 is saying, that's not just for Enoch, that's for you and me. That's for us too. In the most important sense of the word, The way to please God, in the most important sense of the word please, the way to please God is to do what Enoch did. It's to trust him. That's the way we please God. In fact, it's so strong that he he actually takes away any sense of option. He says, uh, we cannot please God unless we trust him. We cannot please God unless we trust him and live according to that trust, live according to that faith, which I, I take from that last part of the verse. Uh, what is it? What is he, he, he gives us this very shorthand definition of, of what it looks like to trust God. We believe he exists and we, be, and we live for his reward. Right? What do you do when you trust the Lord? You believe that he's there and you live for his reward. That pleases God. It pleases God when we live that way. I wanted to give you an example. I'm going to move to the fourth point, and we'll wrap up real quick after that. But before we we move on to the fourth, let me kind of pause here and give an example from real life that, although it's a made-up example, uh, to to kind of help us understand these first, especially this third point, but I think it really helps us understand all of them so far. And, And I want to take the idea of somebody giving to charity. Right, so, you know, it's, it's something that happens a lot. Americans are among the most charitable people on, on the planet from all the statistics I've ever seen. It's, it's, it's something we hear about and do ourselves. So let's take the example of giving to a charity. So imagine two people, right? We have two people, and they both, the, the moral, the end of the story is that both people are going to give a $5,000 gift to a charity. And it's the same charity, right? We're going to normalize here for, for factors. And, and so it's the same charity. Two men who are both going to give $5,000 to the same charity, a nice, safe charity. It's a charity that feeds hungry children. There's no overhead. There's no freighted uh, you know, agenda. They're just giving food, helping children, hungry children have food to eat. That's what the charity does. So two men. The first man does it for financial reasons. Right, so his accountant calls him up one day. His accountant says, listen, I've crunched the numbers. I figured out that if you give $5,000 more this year, if you can give $5,000 in here, I suggest this one right here. You give $5,000 to this charity that feeds hungry children, you will actually come out ahead this year in your taxes. You will save more in taxes than you give to that charity if you do. I'm not an accountant, by the way. I have no idea if it really works that way. But, uh, so, but in my example, that's how it works. If you give $5,000 to this charity, you're going to save $6,000 on your taxes. So, so that's what I recommend you do, the accountant says. And so the man does. He, gives, he write, gets out the checkbook. He writes a check for $5,000 to that, to that charity that feeds hungry children. The second person is reading in his Bible. He's a believer. He's reading in his Bible, and he, he comes to these passages about God's heart for children. 
right? He's in one of the Gospels, and Jesus loves the little children, and, and he keeps reading. He gets to Matthew 25, and you cared for the hungry, and you, you know, and I don't know you if you didn't care for the hungry, and, and he's just, he's reading this. He's just deeply convicted, and, and he has this sense. He begins to have this strong sense that God wants him to give, and a number pops to mind, $5,000 to that to that charity that you heard about, that charity that feeds hungry children. And his first thought is, ah, we can't afford that. No, we've been saving that for a down payment on a car or whatever it is. You know, we can't afford that at first, he says. But it won't go away. <laughs> he keeps having this idea in his head. And so finally he's like, okay, Lord, if you say so. And, and he gets out the check and he writes a, a check for $5,000 to that same charity. Both men gave the same amount of money to the same charity to help with the same problem, feeding hungry, ch- hungry children but only one of them gave by faith. That's the distinction. From the outside, everything looks the same, but from the inside, from the heart, only one of them gave by faith. Right? You see the difference, right? That only one of them did. Uh, the first man gave because of a, of a tax advantage. The second man gave because he trusted the Lord, even when his circumstances maybe suggested that he shouldn't. And here's the thing. I say it looks the same from outside. Uh, the truth of the matter is the charity's happy either way. They didn't stop to ask, why are you giving this money? They don't care. They're like, bring it on. So the charity is pleased with either gift, but the Lord is only pleased with the second one. I think that's the point that we're supposed to see here. The first man pleased his accountant. The second man pleased the Lord. Finally, example number four, and this really just kind of launching pad for, for the next two sermons. Uh, the fourth action... Is that, we, is that we obey by faith. And this one is really the one that's going to dominate a lot of the rest of the book. We obey the Lord by faith. And this is what we learn, first of all, from Noah. By faith, verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, uh, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir excuse me, of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah's story is also told in uh, Genesis. Uh, it's in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, so it's three whole chapters. We won't read it all. Uh, if you haven't, though, if you haven't read the Noah story lately, I, I recommend it. Go back, read Genesis 6, 7, and 8, uh, and, and read it through the lens of his obedience. A lot of times we read uh, the story of Noah through the lens of you know, kind of the miraculousness of it, or we read it through the, the, the lens of God's judgment. But read those three chapters through the lens of obedience. You see this man obeying God. Uh, that's what the author tells us. He says that uh, God warned Noah. He said, here's what's coming, right? Uh, the events yet unseen. Uh, the author doesn't need to spell them out for us in Hebrews because we're familiar with the story. Uh, he says, but, but he, he told Noah about this thing that was going to happen that hadn't happened yet. Right? And, but the language, the way he phrases it, do you see how he connects us back to verse 1, to his definition of faith, his description of faith, uh, conviction of things not seen. That's what Noah had. Noah had things not seen yet, right? And so what was it? God, God told Noah. We don't know how, if it was an audible voice or how it was God did it, but God told Noah there was going to be a flood, and this flood was going to cover the whole earth, right? God says, I'm going to wipe out everybody but you and your family and the animals you take with you. I'm going to send this flood over the whole earth. I I double-checked this morning. The Bible never tells us what Noah said in response, but I wonder if Noah didn't say something like, a what now? (laughs) You're going to send a what? (laughs) Think about it, right? I mean, what's a flood? What's a flood if you're Noah? What's a flood? The early part of Genesis actually seems to imply there hadn't been any rain. 
And it's always, you know, arguments from silence are a little tricky, but, but you, you, we are told in Genesis 2, 6, uh, that the only water the earth was experiencing was a mist. There was a mist coming up from the land. It had not rained yet upon the earth. And then we're not, the word rain doesn't appear again until chapter 7 when God sends the rain to cause the flood. And so the, the, at least textually, maybe scientifically as well, uh, there's no rain on the earth until the flood comes, which makes us wonder if Noah wasn't kind of wondering what God's talking about. You know, God says, I'm going to send rain. And Noah says, what's rain? And God says, there's going to be a flood. And Noah says, what's a flood? And yet he obeyed. I talk about trusting in things not seen. He obeyed. That's the part that Hebrews emphasizes. Uh, God tells him, build a big boat. A what? <laughs> a boat. Build a, actually, the word boat isn't used. Maybe this is partly why. God doesn't, maybe they didn't have any boats yet. God says, build a box. That, that's what ark literally is. The ark is literally a box. Build a wooden box, God says. A giant wooden box. Gives them all the dimensions and says, get to work. And Noah did it. And he wasn't flippant about it either. It says, in reverent fear. That tells us he took it seriously. Right? Noah, this wasn't kind of a, well, everybody needs a hobby. No, he, he, this is okay. This is what God's going to do. He took it seriously. And so, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And because he did. right? He obeyed. Because he obeyed, even, when he, even against Possibly the evidence of his own eyes, uh, even against the evidence, even against the circumstances, he obeyed, and because he did, the Lord rewarded him. And that's what's summarized in the last part of the verse. Uh, his obedience, it's actually summarized both positively and negatively. Uh, the negative part is that his obedience condemned the world. And so he, his obedience stood as this stark example. They all had the example of Noah. They could have looked and said, Noah is a righteous man. Uh, I'm going to follow his example. Right? Nobody told them they couldn't. And so his, his example, his ex righteous example, condemned the world in that sense. He showed them what they should have been doing. But then more importantly, in terms of the positive part of his reward, he became an heir, it says. An heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Right there with you and me. That's the same thing you, I, you and I have. The Bible will use that same sort of language about us. We are heirs of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so everyone else was condemned by the flood, but Noah and his family were saved. They were saved by Noah's faith. He put his faith in the Lord. He trusted. Well, I'm going to stop this morning with Noah. Uh, but as I said a minute ago, he's only the first. He's the first in a series of men and women in this chapter who obeyed the Lord by faith. And I will say, it's not the only theme. We'll look at a couple of other things as we go along. But, but a lot of the examples that come after Noah are going to hit this similar theme. Uh, to, to, to have faith in the Lord, to trust in the Lord, is to obey Him. It's, it's to obey Him. So we'll, we'll look at that more in the next two sermons in this chapter. But I just want to close with a question, and this really is to, to set us up for those two sermons and, and to get us thinking, and, and it's a question I think we all need to ask ourselves, including me, and, the question, and so I'd ask you to meditate on this question. The question is, what does obeying by faith look like in our own lives? I, I mean, laying aside Noah and Abraham and all the others that we, we have looked at and will look at, for you and me, what does obeying by faith look like? I think it really is a very important question to ask. Where do I need to obey God? And especially that second part of the description, regardless of my circumstance. Where do I need to, to step out in faith and do what he's calling me to do regardless of the consequences, maybe even in the face of the consequences that might come my way, because that's where it gets hard. 
Right? That's what makes obeying the Lord by faith hard. Uh, it's easy to obey the Lord by faith when, when it's like something that's going to be good. You know, I want to marry this woman, and, uh, you know, and I'm going to believe by faith. But yay, I get the woman. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful, it was a, that, one, that one was an easy one. Uh, but, but the hard ones, the hard ones, are when obeying the Lord leads to things that might not be so pleasant, might not be things we like. Uh, for example, uh, obeying the Lord might mean making less money. It might. We always want to, you know, the prosperity gospel says obeying God always leads to more money. But you know what? The Bible teaches that obeying God might mean making less. It might mean giving up a relationship that we're really fond of. And I don't mean getting out of a marriage. I I mean, you know, a a, a relationship, like a dating relationship, or maybe a friendship that's leading us astray. I really like this, this friend, but every time we get together, she wants to go get drunk. So living, obeying by faith might mean we don't get together anymore. Uh, it might mean denying ourselves something that we really want in this world. It might mean exposing ourselves to scorn, and the ridicule of other people. I mean, think about it. If all the circumstances say we should do this, right, that's what will make you richer, happier, more popular. But the Bible, or maybe it's just a, a, a conviction in prayer that's compatible with the Bible, says we should do that. Right? So the circumstances say do this, but God says do that. If we do that... <laughs> All the, all the this people are going to think we've lost our minds. Right? What do you think those people, how do you think they treated Noah? It took him 100 years to build the ark, Genesis tells us. I can't imagine he was like, you know, man of the year for those 100 years uh, at any point in the game. And that's really where the challenge comes in. Living by faith is not easy. If it were easy, everybody would do it. But it's not. It, it takes courage. Uh, it takes faith. It takes confidence in the Lord. Confidence in the Lord. A readiness to do his will regardless regardless of the circumstances.